the end of the last calendar year, our church went through uh, a, the fruit of the uh, fruit of the spirit series. We had been working through Paul's letter to the Galatians and thought it would be fitting to cap off the year through a topical study of the fruit of the spirit. I was uh, looking at preaching the. Uh, Fruit of the Spirit of Love. So naturally, I'm thinking about the Bible trivia that you probably are thinking about. What is the love chapter? If you've got to do a topical sermon on love, which chapter are you going to go to? Some of you are thinking, this is a rhetorical question. Don't shout it out. Some of you are thinking 1 Corinthians 13. And that's a good answer. But statistically speaking... 1 John chapter 4 has a higher density, given the number of verses, of the the noun and the verb form of love. It is the love chapter in the Bible. I'm going to leave you with this other piece of Bible trivia, just so that you're not focused during my sermon. What is the shortest verse in the Bible? Now you're thinking about it, right? Jesus wept. But that's not in the Greek. Now you're really thinking about it, aren't you? You have to go look it up. You're going to Google it probably while I'm preaching, aren't you? Love. It is, this is the love chapter. This is where John lays out for us the idea of love. And so it's fitting for us to look at this, uh, since I'm only here this one Sunday, as a good opportunity to, to package up all the ideas of love that we see in Scripture Uh, Just to to refresh our minds, particularly at the beginning of a calendar year, it's good to start off with a reminder of some of the basics. So here we have John's love uh, chapter. And this this particular section, now we're not going to go through all of it, but this particular section from uh, verses 7 to 11 really breaks down into three parts. At the core of it is what John says Uh, In verse 8, at the tail end of verse 8, God is love. And so the core of his argument, really from the end of verse 8 to verse 10, is the root of love. The root of love. John doesn't only say that. He reflects on the idea that love is also connected to our union in Christ. The, the overflow of God's love, as it were, turns out to be our uh, reflection of it and our union with Christ that empowers it. That is the fruit of love. And that really is verses 7 and 8. Finally, the, the very beginning of verse 7 and the, and the end, in, in verse 11, we might call the pursuit of love. So this uh, sermon, we'll be looking at those three parts, the root, the fruit, and the pursuit So we consider how we love one another as God has loved us. So with that in mind, let's dive into our text. And if you haven't turned to it now, we're going to make a significant reference to it and also 1 Corinthians 13. So get your Bibles ready uh, for this sermon. So here's the the, the profound statement that's simple, and yet there's so much behind it that John uses. God is love. From this Simple statement, the rest of his appeal to the saints to love one another unfolds. So we need to spend some time thinking about what it means for God to be love. We need to understand the root of all love. If we're going to understand how the fruit is born and then how we pursue that fruit, how we cultivate that fruit. 
that in mind, I just want to think of th- uh, four uh, facets, four aspects of love with respect to God. First of all, and this is particularly in reference to John chapter 17, God's love is full. It is full. Before anything was ever created, this is what Jesus prays in John chapter 17. The Father loved the Son. A fullness of love between the Father and the Son and then the Spirit implied in, particularly in, in John chapter 17. There's never been a moment, to say it another way, that God has not loved. He has been full of love before time began, before the world was created. Never been a time when God was looking for love. This past summer, my uh, family and I went down to Charlotte, and I had the distinct honor of being the president of a local chapter of the American Bible Society. And our speakers committee at that meeting had invited a gentleman who's an actor in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he performed for us uh, sections of James Weldon Johnson's work, God's Trombone, Seven Negro Sermons in Verse. Tremendous work. In the uh, 20th century, early 20th century, Johnson had captured the essence of what he had called in the introduction of his his work, the old-time Negro preacher. The sermons that he wrote or captured from uh, the culture that he uh, lived in preserved a powerful tradition of preaching that uh, I have neither the personality nor the uh, ability uh, to emulate, though it is uh, tremendously effective, especially when you hear a professional actor uh, give these sermons. Now, for all of the goodness of it, and it really was impactful, there was one thing, and it was at the beginning that really made me uh, think, because it was wrong theologically. Everything else was good, but this one point just kept gnawing at me. Let me, let me read it to you, at least, uh, in, in the first sermon, entitled The Creation. This is how uh, Johnson starts that sermon. And God stepped out on space, and he looked around and said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. Here's the problem, and you know this. God's never been lonely. He's never had to find a way to keep himself occupied. Because his love has always been full between Father, Son, and Spirit. He is our triune God, three in one and one in three. And though John doesn't explicitly make this point here, we saw that he makes that point in John chapter 17. So we can bring that idea in here and see that God's love is full. That the Father has loved the Son before the world was created. A fullness of love. But it doesn't stop there, does it? God's love is not only full, but it flows. For God didn't only love within Himself, and that was it, but it couldn't be contained within the Trinity, and it, flew, it overflowed out in creation. This divine act of love, God created the heavens and the earth and all that they contain. As a divine act of love, God continues to sustain us. Every breath that we take is a reminder that God loves us, that He gives that to us. He's created us. He's sustained us by the word of His power and He saves us out of an overflow of His love. 
Again, John says, For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. God's love is full, but it doesn't stay contained within Him. It flows out in His creation, in the sustaining of His creation, and then the redemption of His people. And that love that flows out is a free love that God gives. Love, God's love costs you absolutely nothing. He demands no compensation for creating you and sustaining every breath that you take. You can't even pay Him back, even if you tried. John tells us in, in verse 10 of our text this morning, in this is love, not that we have loved God. His full and His flowing love is free in spite of our rebellion against Him. He freely gives it. It's gracious, shown to whom He wills. One more point that that John brings up here again. It's, It's a full, flowing, and free love, but it is final. It is a final love. It is efficacious. It does what it's supposed to do. It finishes what it is meant to do. This is God's love to us. Look again at verses 9 and 10. After reminding us that God is love, John says in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God's love as He acts towards the the world is this. He sent His only Son into the world. Why? John continues, so that we might live through him. And how does he do that? And here is where the finality of God's love comes in. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son as the propitiation for our sins. The big theological word, isn't it? Propitiation. But all it simply means is that God's wrath has been turned away for good. When Christ hung on the cross, as he said, it is finished. Love of God completes what it sought to do. That's what it means when John says God is love. He means that God's inner Trinitarian love flows out in a free and final solution to our greatest problem, which is our sin and our rebellion against our great God. God is love. There's much packed in there, isn't there? But I do want to take one minute and to say what it doesn't mean. Here so often, there are lots of types of love, right? I love ice cream. I love my dog. I love my family. And if those three things are the same, then there's a problem, right? We know that there are different types of love. So if someone speaks about love, we need to know the context, right? Same thing here. Because what we need to be careful of are are those people who might want to twist it around and say, well, love is God. And suddenly, love becomes the God. And it's usually a love that is not full, flowing, free, and final. Is a love that seeks to cover over sin in a way that only encourages a sin rather than 
solving that problem that we have with God. You can't deify a worldly notion of love. So as we hear, as we engage with the world, we need to understand that context matters. And it's here in John's chapter, his love chapter, that he helps us with this idea. What does it mean that God is love? What does love mean with respect to God? It means it is sacrificial. It's substitutionary. That's true love. Anything that anyone wants to put into the idea of love must be tested against that idea of God's substitutionary atonement in Jesus Christ. We have a test as we engage with the world. As they want to tell us what love is, we can go to the scriptures and say, well, this is what it means for God. So love can't be deified. We need to understand love with respect to the deity, with respect to God. John wants us to know that the root of love is God himself, and as that flows out to us. But he doesn't want to end there. This isn't just some lecture that he's giving in this chapter. He wants his readers to know that the love of God is organically connected to the love that his followers express. This is the fruit of love. And we see it really in verse 7 and verse 8. John says, love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is the fruit of love. There are two things in particular that John wants us to know about the fruit of love here. First of all, he says that the fruit of love is evidence of rebirth. Or to say it another way, love is an organic outgrowth of our salvation in Jesus Christ. As you are born from above or born from the Spirit, you love as a natural consequence of that. As you love, you are bearing witness to the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit in you. Moreover, when we are reborn and we're brought into this reconciled relationship with God, then we know God and can know Him more fully. It's through the work of the Spirit in us. And since we are reconciled to God, we can come to know God and His ways better. And now you have a reinforcing cycle here, don't you? As you love, you show your evidence of rebirth, but also you're coming to know God better so that you love more, and you're, you're evidencing even more your, love of, your, your rebirth and your love of God through this. And so the cycle feeds on itself. And you can see how the fruit of love is then reflecting that outgrowth of God's love. It flows out. It's evidence that we are born again. It's evidence that we know God when we love. You know, this idea of the fruit of love is not something that I made up. Clearly, the fruit of the Spirit is something that is laid out in, by Paul in Galatians. And even Jesus himself lays out this idea in the Sermon on the Mount. But I think Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 is, is helpful for us to see, to, to characterize, you might say, what love, the fruit of love looks like. And so I want you to turn back there and we'll just look at what the Apostle Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Beginning in verse 
verses 1 through 3, this is what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What Paul's saying here is characterizing the fruit of love in a, in a negative form. That he's saying that this fruit must have a substance to it. It can't be merely outside flashy and inside empty. So love is the substance of it that gives it life. Great sacrificial acts mean nothing unless there is substance to them, and that is the love that comes from God. Now, I happen to like apples a lot. I like to eat them. I actually like to pick them. I like to drink them. I like them in all sorts of forms, an apple pie, apple cider, uh, baked apples, those are good too, fresh, I'll eat those. Apples are a great type of fruit to illustrate this idea that, that Paul is saying here of outside looking flashy and good and inside being rotten because, sorry if, if you're offended by this, I really hate red delicious apples for this precise reason. Think about it. It has been engineered to look really good on the outside. That's, that's a fact. It has been engineered for that purpose. When you're walking through the grocery store and you see it, and you say, that looks like it's pretty good, but you know the substance is not on the inside. Go get the Honeycrisp. It'll actually taste good. Don't get the Red Delicious. It looks good on the outside. It is like having prophetic powers without love. You bite in under that surface and it's mealy and it is disappointing because it has no true substance to it. It's like giving all that you have away but not having love. You have gained nothing because there's no substance to it. I just looked down at my notes and I saw the other form of, of apples that I had forgotten about and that's donut form. Apple cider donuts are probably my favorite part of the fall. I hope you feel the same way. Continue on. Paul goes on in verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me read these again and then we'll just make some comments about this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things hopes all things, endures all things. And then the first part of verse 8, he says, love never ends. Let's think about this idea as he's characterizing what the fruit of love looks like. He says, as he's mounting up these, these qualities of love, that there are some outward characteristics of it that are sacrificial. If you love with patience and kindness, you're probably going to sacrifice your own time and interests for the other. Arrogance and rudeness are excluded when we're talking about love here because love thinks highly of others. There's room, there's there's no room rather, for ramming home your own agenda at the expense of others because love does not insist on its own way. 
outward and sacrificial focuses, but also inward. Paul continues on. There's, there's a quality of inward contentment. Love does not envy or boast. It is not irritable or resentful because the one who loves is satisfied. Satisfied with and thankful for the things that God has given to him or her. This is also the reason why love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. There's a contentment that is brought with love. Paul would say elsewhere in in his letter to the Philippians, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I would suggest to you that contentment that he speaks of there is because he understands the fruit of love. Finally, this enduring quality of love. Love endures all things and love never ends. It's the foundation of the spiritual gifts. Paul will continue on in this chapter and the next one in, in 1 Corinthians to tell us that the gifts that God, the Spirit doles out according to the grace that he, he gives, no matter how impressive those might be, they are going to pass away, but love is what it will remain. And so for our purposes, what we see is that pursuing love is the highest of all ends. If it is what will never end, then surely that is what we ought to be pursuing. And since God is love, there's no dichotomy here between pursuing God and pursuing love. This is the fruit of love. If you turn back to 1 John chapter 4 and uh, verse 8... John has essentially uh, taken these ideas, condensed them down, and said, well, if you love, we know you're from God and that you you are born again, but quite to the contrary, if you don't have the fruit of love, then you are clearly showing that the root is diseased. That's the second point that he makes here in verse 8. For all the things that Paul says, you keep that in the back of your mind, the way that the fruit looks, for those who don't love, the fruit is diseased because the root is diseased. This is what John Stott says about a lack of love showing hypocrisy. He says, For the loveless Christian to profess to know God, to have been born of God, is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak. To have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. The fruit comes from the root. It is characterized by the love of God. And so if that fruit does not look like what Paul has mentioned, then clearly it is not coming from the proper root. It's a bit of a warning for us, but a helpful encouragement too, I hope, that as you Consider your interactions with your neighbors and fellow believers with the world. You see the fruit as it is described by Paul. You're encouraged to know that you are vitally connected to the root of love. So John says that the fruit of love, it is organically flowing from that root of God. And therefore, he, he, he uh, exhorts his readers to pursue that love. This is what he says in the beginning of verse 7. This is what he says in verse 11, bookending his treatment here of love. 
And when he does this, you look at verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, he makes his appeal again because the root is the source of our ability to love. If God so loved us, then let us love one another. This is what uh, has been called the imitation of God. And it's, it's an old idea. Leviticus, the beginning of Leviticus chapter 19, actually, uh, says uh, that uh, be holy for God, the Lord is holy. And Jesus says, be perfect for your heavenly Father is perfect in imitation of your Father. Paul says it a couple chapters before in 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The idea that we pursue love by imitating the love that we've seen through God in Jesus Christ. And he goes on, he, he finishes this, this statement, if, if God so loved us, we also, also ought to love one another. As we pursue love, it is a reciprocal relationship. It is a two-way street. You must be both open to love and open to giving love. It's got to work both ways because otherwise there's There's an element of pride if you're not open to receiving the love of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It pains my heart, and this has happened twice recently in the past couple months to me, where we have, at our church, have have reached out to to love one of the uh, members of our church, and they come back and they say, but I'm ashamed for the help that you're giving then you don't understand love. Just as equally do you give it as you receive it. It's a two-way street. We must be humble enough to receive the love of our brothers and sisters as much as we are willing to show the love of God through our own lives. So this love is reciprocal. It is a love that is, is rooted in God himself. It is characterized by everything that we've seen Paul say here. And we do it by applying, pursuing this love with one another because God so loved us. So I want to end with four points of application based on everything that we've seen here to try to help take shape on how we pursue a love with one another. Point one, we love one another even when someone doesn't deserve love. And here, deserve is in quotes in my manuscript, so take it for, for how it is. We love one another even when someone doesn't deserve love. You see, the reality is that fellow believers have, are, or will hurt you. You know that. You've probably experienced that. And you may even have legitimate grounds to say that a brother or sister in Christ has wronged or has sinned you, sinned against you. And perhaps you now have that feeling, you're harboring that feeling that this person doesn't deserve my love because of the way that they have sinned against me. And yet God loved you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
While we were alienated from God and surely did not deserve His love, He showered it upon us by sending His only Son to die that we might live. We didn't deserve His love, and yet He loved us. Love is not a bargaining chip. The withholding or withdrawing of love is not a means for us to inflict punishment on one another. Those who may have wronged us, even legitimately wronged us. You see, to love as God has loved us, as, as John encourages us, we love one another even when another person doesn't deserve our love. That's what it means to love one another, to love sacrificially. Point number two, we love one another even when the object of our love is unlovely. We love one another even when the object of our love is unlovely. You know, the reality is that believers are awkward. And the irony is that you're probably thinking of someone right now, but somebody else is probably thinking of you. You had our, our pastoral intern preach uh, in, at the end of December. And he and I were talking at one point, uh, and he said, I was saying to him, you know, it's, it's amazing. The church is amazing because the church is composed of, of people who would never spend an hour together if it weren't for our union in Christ. We come from such different backgrounds, so many of us. And the only thing that holds us together is the only thing that matters, is that we are followers of Jesus. But you know what? Sometimes that turns into awkward conversations or awkward situations where someone who is from a different background than us, has different uh, culturally accepted norms even, says something that makes you wonder why they just said that. It can be awkward. The church is composed of people who are tied together out of circumstances that would not ordinarily bring them together. And yet, we love one another even if those awkward moments might make that person seem unlovely. Because, as God loved us, He loved a wholly unlovely people who were nothing like Him until He came down. He sought to live as us and with us. To get to know us. And that was His love being shown to us. That gave His only Son for our lives. So love, love is not exclusive. We don't avoid loving one another because we think it's going to be awkward or difficult to do so. So one of my pastors, when, when my family lived in uh, Washington, D.C., said, you need to embrace the awkward. You need to embrace the awkward. To love as God has loved us, we love one another even when the object of our love is unlovely. Point three. 
We love one another even when we might have better things to do. We love one another even when we might have better things to do. Here, the reality is that your time is precious. I know that. And I know that a significant portion of your time, if not all of it, is allocated. You have busy lives. You have families, many of you who are you're taking care of. Sometimes it can be very difficult for us to see how we can even love one another because we don't seem to have an extra 15 minutes even to ourselves. But again, God loved us. Though he had a perfect, a full, and eternal love within himself, he thought it good to dwell among us to save us through His Son. Certainly He had better things to do than save a corrupted, sinful generation. Yet here we are, gathered together to sing of His glories because He loved us in that way. So you see, love is not self-centered. Love requires, many times, giving up something, especially our time. Sometimes that means carving out a Saturday morning or afternoon to help someone with a project that you can do, but they might not be able to do. Perhaps you're gifted in a way that can help someone, but to use your gifting, you need to give up your time. You may have better things to do on a Saturday morning. John is calling us to love one another. Perhaps it means giving up a quiet Friday night so that you can invite someone over from the church, from your neighborhood, one of your coworkers, whatever it might be, to show hospitality to them. Someone who maybe has never been invited over to someone's house. You may have better things to do. You may have really wanted that quiet night, and yet we love one another when we Give up that time. Be in fellowship. To seek to show hospitality. To love as God has loved us. We love one another even when we might have better things to do. Well, fourth and and finally, we love one another even when it might hurt to love. We love one another even when it might hurt to love. And again, the reality is that love will hurt. We are not perfect. That's why we confess our sins every single week. We acknowledge that in a, in, in a cycle, right? Love can be very messy. And it could lead to you, your, your feelings being hurt. You might financially be taken advantage of if you seek to show hospitality to someone. You show the mercy of God to someone and then they, they, they never come back to the church again. It happens. It happens. You're going to be extended beyond your comfort zone when you love one another. But in those moments where you're wondering, why am I doing this? It just doesn't seem to make sense. Remember that God's love to us was free. 
And yet it cost him everything. It cost him his only son. That we might be enabled to love one another as he has loved us. You see, love is not reserved. Oftentimes, we are called to love beyond our means, whether that is our time or our our money or the abilities that we think we have. Going through uh, the book of Exodus at my church in the evening, and we're in in Exodus chapter 3 and and chapter 4 right now, where God calls Moses, and, and the striking reality of everything that you see here is that God does, in fact, call you to do things that you're not able to do. It's because He gives you the power to do it. That includes loving one another. You might be called to love someone beyond your ability to think about it. And yet, His presence is with you. His power is there to guide you. He has called you to do it. So you heed His call, even when it might hurt to love. You love intentionally. You give generously even as you might feel the cost of it, do you love one another? Because to love as God has loved us, we love one another even when it might hurt to love. So this is what it means to love one another. To be rooted in the very simple but profound statement that God is love. To look at that fruit of love, to understand its characteristics, and then to pursue it. And to pursue it in the way that God has shown to us, in the way that He has laid down His life for us in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I'm only here for this, this Sunday, but I do hope that you will take this with you week to week, month to month, and remember, as God has loved us, so we ought to love one another. Let's bring glory to His name in the ways in which we love one another. Let's go to God in prayer. And our great God, we do give You thanks for Your Son. We thank You that You have opened our eyes. You have enlivened our hearts. You have enlightened our minds to the truth in Jesus Christ. We thank You that You have given us a vision to see how You, O God, are love. And through Your love, we see what it means for us to love one another. So, Father, as we pursue this love, we pray that you would give us the grace to do it. We pray that you would empower us to love as you have loved us. That your name may be known in this area, among this members of this church, in this area, to the ends of the earth because we have loved one another. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.